lost my first business. Now I lost my stepfather to cancer. He lost his battle. It was one of the lowest points in my life. And I just remember sitting there thinking, this, you know, like, I'm such a loser. Like, I can't, you know, I've let everybody down. It was one of those moments where I look now and I'm like, I had to dig so deep and have to just say, like, okay, there's a reason that I'm going through this. And I don't know what it is yet. And that uncertainty can be really, really scary. And and you have two options. So are you going to go back and have the guts to try to do it again? Or are you going to just stay safe? From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs, whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, how Kendra Scott took $500 and turned it into a billion-dollar jewelry business. What I love about Kendra Scott's story is that it's one of persistence in the face of total uncertainty. Before founding her namesake company, Kendra had a failed business, a newborn baby, and she was dealing with the loss of a loved one. She says it was one of the lowest points in her life, but something in her said she had to give entrepreneurship another shot, and she bet on herself. Here she is to tell you her story. Kendra Scott, welcome to No Limits. Oh my goodness, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here with us. Not only are you an incredible businesswoman, an entrepreneur, uh, but you grew up in Wisconsin and then Texas and you have this great backstory, um, which I, I think a lot of people, they they might have heard it, but I think it's a pretty big deal that in 2002, you found this company with $500. <laughs> Your son is three months old. You yes. have a newborn baby. You go door to door in Austin. And today it is a billion dollar brand. I You'll know. 90 stores by the end of this year. It's it's really hard to get your head around. Honestly, Rebecca, it's, it's for me every day. I mean, I think about being in that extra bedroom when I was putting together my first collection vividly. You know, it's it's still in my mind and, and it's it's part of who I am. And I think the struggle of starting a business like that with such limited resources, it never leaves you and you never ever you're always grateful. And I'm so grateful to be in this position and, and I love what I do. I wake up every morning and I'm just so excited to get into the office. Well, I can imagine why, because you have beautiful products. You're wearing some of those beautiful products. But take us back to those early days and what it was that both drove you and helped you guide you to this business. You know, I mean, I, I, as you mentioned, I grew up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's a small community in Wisconsin. Uh, my mother's family were farmers and coal miners. And you want to talk about hard work. I mean, those are the hardest working people on the planet. Uh, my uncles would work in the fields in the day, and then they'd go to the mines at night. Um, And so I grew up really admiring them and their strength and really seeing what hard work looked like and that life isn't always easy, but, um, you know, they always had time for their family and they always had time for their community. And I was raised very much by a mom who, even when they were had limited resources, they would help a neighbor in need. And I think just having that kind of foundation from such amazing parents who were so thoughtful and giving, I knew that was part of something that I wanted to achieve when I became an adult, is I wanted to be able to figure out how I could help people. But in addition to that, here I am in Kenosha, and I love Kenosha, but it's not exactly like the fashion mecca of the world, let's be honest. 
Um, I had an aunt, and she was a fashion director in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The big city. The big city of Milwaukee uh, for Gimbel's department stores, which I don't believe are around anymore. Um, But she was a fashion director. And so here I had this exposure to this woman who is so beautiful and so dynamic and would be traveling to these unbelievable places, Milan and Paris. And she would come back with all the pictures, actually slides. Do you remember those like turnstile slides? Yes. Yeah, where you'd sit and you'd click with I the clicker. I remember after vacations, not our family, but yeah. uh, friends of the family, after a vacation, you'd go over to their house and watch the slideshow of their vacation. Exactly. Okay, so we're <laughs> in the basement of my house. And, you know, here we are like projecting it up on the wall. And she's showing me images that she took on her little camera in Milan of, you know, Carolina Herrera and, you know, uh, I mean, everybody, you know, wow. Oscar de la Renta. And she would sit with me and I'm like seven years old. And she's like, honey, what do you keep seeing? Tell me what you keep seeing. And I'm like, plaid and shoulder pads or, you know, whatever it was, 1980s. <laughs> is this a trick question? Yeah. And she's like, you know, that's my job as a fashion director is to understand what the trends are and then make them relatable to every woman. And I remember in that basement, fashion to me was magic. And when I would go into her closet, I would put on her jewelry and her clothes and I could become anyone I wanted to be. Uh, it didn't matter where you were from. Like, I would come out of that closet just feeling, like, amazing. And I knew then, as a little girl, like, I want to be in this industry someday. I want to grow up and be like my Aunt Jo. Did you talk about it as a kid? Did you tell people that? Yes, I did. And, you know, people, again, you know, people didn't grow up and become fashion designers where I grew up. What did people you know, say when you would say that? They would just kind of laugh and be like, oh, Kendra, you know, <laughs> oh, she's crazy Kendra. Because I was always crazy doing, Kendra. you know, making crazy clothes and cutting things up and reworking clothes and always loved jewelry. And, you know, so I would come in with some pretty wild outfits, I think. Um, and my parents were so sweet. They let me leave the house with some of this crazy stuff I put on. <laughs> But, you know, I I really loved it. I loved it so much. And, you know, I love my family, too, because they were, you know, they're so supportive and loving. But at the same time, they're like, honey, I just don't know if that's a great idea. And my dad wanted me to have a safe, stable job. He wanted me to go to college. He wanted me to, you know, get in marketing or business mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and I just always had this inside of me where I felt like maybe I could make this happen. But to your point, I remember growing up, when I was growing up in Minneapolis, I remember wanting to do what I'm doing now and thinking, how would I do that? Because it's one thing to have this vision, but the steps in between are so complicated, or at least it feels like they're Mm -hmm. so complicated. And then you look around and you think, I don't know anybody. Yeah. You know, I don't think when I started, I mean, I would love to be able to tell you that I had this big grand vision that I would be sitting across from you talking about my billion dollar fashion brand. That was not the case. I mean, when I started my jewelry company, I really was one, I wanted to do something that allowed me to be present with my new baby son. And I didn't want to have to go back to work where I would be limited in my time with him. And so I could make the jewelry and he could be right next to me in his bassinet. Uh, When I would go to New York, he would come with me. I mean, I remember setting up my trade show booth with him in a little bassinet (laughs) next to me as I'm like putting the jewelry in. And I had a friend here that would watch him. I mean, I, I just I wanted to survive and I wanted to be able to do what I loved. 
And I wanted to be able to help people, um, that coming back to that community. So for me, you know, in the very beginning, it was three priorities. It was I wanted to be a mom, so family was incredibly important to me. I wanted to be in fashion, which I dreamt of doing in my Aunt Jo's closet. And I wanted to give back to my community like I saw my parents doing and philanthropy. So it's family, fashion, philanthropy. And I really, that was my goal. It's like if I could do all three of those things, then that would be success. And I think when you do what you want so badly and you're so passionate about it, crazy things like this can happen. You can build something that really gets other people that have those same sets of values together And when you have those kind of people together, watch out. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that the clarity of your mission is also something when you talk to successful people, having that North Star and then sort of almost reverse engineering from there is what allows and guides people to where they should go. Right. I mean, I think when you look at yourself, and no matter who you are, and think about what is really important to me, what are the things that like really, really are important in my life? And it's not just always about career. It's about all the things that make up our life. And you start to re- identify, wow, like this is what I want to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. And the key is then surrounding yourself with people that are like-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you know, there's a lot of naysayers out there. I can't tell you how many people told me I was crazy or I couldn't do it or you don't have the experience to do it, or that's, you know, how many, there's so many jewelry designers. What's going to make you different, Kendra? I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that wanted to say no, but there were a few, a few people who said, Kendra, you can do this. I believe in you. And those people gave me strength on days when I was questioning my own self. And I think that's so important for anybody to remember that, you know, you can hear a lot of voices of no's. Um, I always say that no in a mirror is on. So, <laughs> you know, to me, we're just talking, you know. That is great. <laughs> no in a mirror is on. I'm going to use that. So what were the biggest challenges early on besides the people telling you this isn't going to work? I had very limited resources. I started with $500. So I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have a, you know, a really wealthy, you know, parent that was going to invest. I had to put everything I owned up for collateral. I maxed out my credit card. So I think in the beginning, it was really hard because I was doing everything on debt. And so I just, as a new mother, too, I felt like, oh, my gosh, I'm putting my family at risk. I have to make this work. Failure was not an option. And I mean, looking in those little babies' faces, that's all it took for me every day to be like, okay, I got a no today, but I'm going to get a yes tomorrow. And, you know, I would go to people and I, you know, they'd be like, no, we're not interested. And I'd send them cookie. I'd send cupcakes. I kept sending them <laughs> line sheets. Like, I was like, okay, like, you know, hey, maybe no now, but like, we're going to, I'm going to keep talking to you. And I would not give up. I mean, and I think, you know, I look back and I'm like, yeah, that would, took that tenacity. And it was hard because it, it was wasn't easy, but I don't think anyone that's an entrepreneur will tell you this is easy. <laughs> yes. Yes. What was the hardest part? You know, I think fear. You know, we, I think fear can hold a lot of us back. And I think, you know, being afraid to fail. I had failed in my first business um, that I had started when I was 19 years old. I had a little hat store in Austin. Uh, I started after my stepfather was diagnosed with brain cancer, and I met so many women who had lost their hair through chemotherapy, and I thought, God, there should be better headwear options for them. And so that was my first business, and I was an idealist at 19. I wanted to save the world. I wanted to utilize fashion to do good. And I thought, oh, I'm going to change everybody's perspective of hats. It's going to be like 1940 again, and everyone's going to start wearing hats. I'm going to open hat stores up all over the United States. Like, this is happening. 
Uh, clearly, you, you like very rarely see people wearing hats. <laughs> um, that did not work out. And, you know, I dropped out of college to do this. Mm-hmm. I wanted to help. I mean, I couldn't You sit. were also taking care of your stepfather at the time. Yeah. So I moved, you know, to be close to my mom and help her with him. Um, and, you know, it was a very debilitating disease for him. And I wanted, you know, I couldn't save him. So I thought, well, what can I do? I can, I could do something with the, what I love to do, which is fashion. Maybe I could help. So we were donating money back to cancer research. And after five years of running that store, seven days a week till open till close, I couldn't even hardly pay for anybody to help me. My mom donated her time when she could. I had to close it. And, you know, so coming off of that failure, which then, one, I lost my first business. Now I lost my stepfather to cancer. He lost his battle. It was one of the lowest points in my life. And I just remember sitting there thinking, this, you know, like, I'm such a loser. Like, I can't, mm. you know, I've let everybody down. And the person I did this for, I've lost him. And now I've let him down in my mind. And I think, you know, it was one of those moments where I look now and I'm like, I had to dig so deep and have to just say, like, okay, there's a reason that I'm going through this. And I don't know what it is yet. And that uncertainty can be really, really scary. And and you have two options. One is you can just swallow and be feel sorry for yourself. And I could have moved back in with my mother. The second option was I had to go get a job. Um, after I thought I was going to be this big entrepreneur, I had to actually go back now and get a, a real job, which I did. And then the, the last option also was, you know, okay, get this job. And then what? And like, you want this. So are you going to go back and have the guts to try to do it again? Or are you going to just stay safe? And I decided to try again. And Kendra Scott was born. <laughs> What's the biggest lesson you applied from the hat business to Kendra Scott? The hat business for me was an MBA. I mean, it was my, uh, it, I mean, I got I got a master in the school of hard knocks. I yeah. mean, I really did got, I, I, and I say that all the time. It taught me retail inside out and backwards. It, I learned that, you know, you have to have certain amount of margin to be able to have a successful retail company. You know, What I, is the margin you need? It's definitely more than Keystone, let's say that, which is 50%, which is normal for a lot of retailers who are buying, you know, from, from other manufacturers. So I knew you needed to be the designer manufacturer to really work. You have control. I, control. I also thought, oh, I'm never going to be in retail again. Because retail is hard. After the hat store, I was like, I will never do retail again. I'm going to be in wholesale because wholesale is safe. I remembered as a buyer from my store, I'd go write an order to a manufacturer. They'd ship my product. They didn't worry about, you know, who was going to sell it. That was the greatest idea. I'm like, this is brilliant. I'm going to be on the designer end, never get into retail. Well, hello, I've got 90 stores by the end of this year. So never say never, right? (laughs) It's such an interesting thing because so many companies nowadays are not in retail. Mm -hmm. So many companies are doing direct to consumer in in a storefront facing way. What made you initially, so your first storefront was 2010? We'll be right back with more Kendra Scott after a quick word from our sponsor. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
So your first storefront was 2010? In Austin. Yeah. In, Austin. in Austin. What made you decide to go that route? So you you have to remember 2010, 20, 2009. This is basically the recession. the recession. Right? So here we are in, in South Congress of Austin, Texas, which is a hip happening place. It was almost like a ghost town. I mean, there were stores shuttering all over. Um, you know, and, and we were just selling wholesale because remember, that was safe, right? I took an order. I shipped product. Great. Well, the recession hit and all these stores I was doing business with were also shuttering. So they couldn't order. I had put all of my eggs in one basket and that basket was falling apart after the recession. And I came very close to losing my business in 2009. So again, I decided here's, you know, this, uh, it could be scared and just try to like figure out what to do, or I could do something radical. And and I decided that was retail. And for us, in a time when everybody was shuttering, I thought, let's do something. Let's let's try to open a store so that I can learn from my customer because I hadn't been able to talk to her directly because my other manufacturer, my other wholesale accounts were. So this allowed me to talk to her. I wanted to learn from her. It really was for me a laboratory. Mm. Um, it really wasn't this big idea that we were going to start opening retail stores all over the United States. It was I wanted to stand there with her and say, "What do you love?" What do you want more of? What do you hate? What do you what do you need in your life? And I wanted it to be a lab for us. So our offices sat above our store and we were able to negotiate a great lease because everything was closing. And, you know, it really taught me that, like, I needed to talk to her directly. And the success of that first store was eye opening because we did everything that everyone else wasn't doing. So. I mean, you you shop for jewelry. Mm-hmm. You remember you go in and there's like cases everywhere, and then you have to talk. To, it's very you scary. Can't touch it. You can't touch. Right. There, and then there's that pressure because if you ask them to open the box, then you're touching it. And are you buying it? Are you not buying it? Exactly. And it's like intimidating. And if you go in and they kind of look at you a little judgy, like, are you going to buy? The, you mm-hmm. know. And I hated that experience. I hated going in there. And I and I was. It gave me anxiety to go into a jewelry yes. store. So when I opened my store, I'm like, I want the jewelry freely displayed. I want people to be able to touch and feel it without asking. I had little signs that said, have fun, try on. I wanted it to be this fun experience for them. Engaging. Engaging. We created Color Bar where customers could pick their stones and then pick the styles that they wanted and right in front of them watch it get set. It was like theater, bringing all of those things into the store. We were cupcakes and champagne and it it was really a party. And what we you were so far ahead of your time. (laughs) You really were, because this is what now in this retail revolution or whatever you want to call it, it's only the last couple of years that most retailers have woken up to this and they're all doing what you were doing back then. Yeah, well, you know, but I think again, thank you to the hat business because what I learned (laughs) is that you activity breeds activity and you have to create experiences for people. And you can't just rely on a good location. You can't just hope that that's going to do it. You have to engage with your customer, excite them, have reasons for them to come in. And you really also have to be able to, to connect with her or him in a meaningful way. And so for us, it was also our engagement within the community. We were having Kendra Gibbs back events every week in the store. We were doing girls night out on Wednesday nights. We were doing birthday parties at the color bar. I mean, you walk by one of our stores and there's 
always something going on. And I think, you know, for me, I learned that from the hat business, that this time we're going to do it different. If we're going to do it different, we're going to color outside the lines and we're going to do it our own way. And again, people said, you know how much merchandise you're going to lose from shoplifters by leaving it out? Again, this advice that sometimes people give you. And I said, you know what? I believe that 99% of people are good people. I believe that. Maybe I'm wrong. And there may be 1% or 2% that aren't, but I'm going to trust that 99% of the people are going to do the right thing. And I believe in them, and I respect my customers enough to believe in them. We have very little loss at Kendra Scott. Our customers wouldn't allow for it if they saw something. They'd be like, hey, drop that, you know? (laughs) You reminded me, uh, so I did an internship. This is many, many years ago. I did an internship at Best Buy in Minnesota, and they revolutionized shopping for electronics because back then you could never walk into a store and actually touch and feel the electronics. Well, now you go into an Apple store, for example, and it's right there. Everything is there for the customer to interact with. So it just amazes me that you were thinking of these things back then when so few others were thinking of them. Now that everybody is sort of playing by that rule book, how do you differentiate? You know, I think that's the thing. You have to stay being innovative. Every day I wake up and I go, what am I going to do today to surprise and delight my customer? What am I going to do today to wow her? The minute that you become complacent, you're going to fail. So you have to come up every day with a new concept or a new way to engage with her or excite her. You know, we just came out with charms, which I'm loving because they tell these amazing stories. But part of it for me was the experience. So when she comes in the store, I want her to be able to touch and play with them all and build it herself, you know, create it to where she's part of this experience that I got so excited on. And I think for retailers, you have to always be thinking of it. If I was the customer, what would I want? You know, what would what would what would make me excited and happy? And if you can put yourself in her shoes, you're going to win. But when you start kind of thinking 360 and like, oh, that, you know, this will have to cut costs and this does you have to be a thoughtful business person, but you got to wow her. You have to surprise and delight your customers or you will not make it in retail today. How do you manage it when you part of your vision and your mission statement conflicts with that sort of monetary financial side and you're getting that pressure? You know, I think, again, for us, you know, philanthropy has been a big part of our of our company. And that was another place where people said, you can't just give all this stuff away, Kendra. How can that make sense? I mean, you're never going to be able to build a company by doing that. And in those early days, you know, I decided in my bedroom, if someone called me, I would always have something to give. I could make a pair of earrings. I could make a necklace. If a nonprofit was in need and needed my help, I'd figure out a way to do it, even when I was having trouble figuring out how to pay my own rent. Uh, And we've kept that philosophy for 16 years. We don't turn somebody away. If they need our help, we're there from big nonprofits to a friend in need who might have a child at a hospital or, you know, a national disaster like the, the, you know, hurricanes or flooding. We've been able to get into these communities in such a meaningful way. And it's really, I think, I think for us, that has been this amazing thing because our customers don't just love our products. They love what we're doing. Purpose. It's a purpose. And there's a connection to our brand that I think is very, very special. You can't create heart. You have to start with it. it ha- you can't later have a brand and be like, okay, how are we going to, you know, bring heart into our brand? <laughs> it's harder to mm-hmm. do that. You know, you really have to start with it and it has to be authentic. 
Yeah, I think this is where a lot of the larger brands are really lost right now because they didn't start with that Mm -hmm. and they're trying to infuse it and sometimes it doesn't feel real. Right. Tori Birch was here not that long ago and her worst advice was somebody telling her back then that you couldn't couple business with purpose, Mm -hmm. that it was antithetical to put the two things together and that investors and everybody else would run for the hills because they'd be afraid that you were more inclined towards giving everything away than selling it. Right. And that's so true. And I think, you know, people are understanding now that you you can put those things together and it does work and that you can build such an unbelievable loyal brand following uh, when people feel like they're connected to something that they believe in. Was there a moment where you felt like I've made it? (laughs) I still don't think if I I feel that way. You know what, Rebecca? I think I definitely cannot have not cannot imagine this amazing life that I'm living. Um, I think I've made it in the way that I've created a company that supports women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember I was watching the movie a couple days ago, Nine to Five. Do you remember yes, that movie? Yes, I love that. Oh movie. my god, you have to watch it again. By the <laughs> way, if anyone, if you haven't watched Nine to Five in a while, I strongly recommend it. But I'm watching it and I got emotional because I watched that movie on my VHS in Wisconsin a million times. And I remember when the women took over the office and they created all these incredible things for moms. And that was like such a pipe dream. Like that was so far from what reality could ever be. And I walk into our offices and I realize maybe that was like in my brain from watching 9 to 5 as a little girl. (laughs) But we've created a company that supports women. We have wellness rooms for nursing moms. We have a kid's room. We had bring your kid to work day yesterday. There were kids everywhere. We had a petting zoo. and A petting zoo? We did. We brought in a petting zoo. I think you're the only ones with a petting zoo on bring your kid to work day. (laughs) But it was, you know, it's. It's, I think for me, that's, I mean, that's when I knew we've made it because, again, we are creating a place that's supporting women at every stage of their life, whether that is through motherhood or through, you know, when they're getting out of college or whether they're getting married, wherever they're at in their life, we're supporting these women. And they're being, they have an incredibly successful careers and they're living a happy life. And again, in fashion, it was dog eat dog. Like mm-hmm. you had to be the first one there, the last one to leave. You carried two cell phones. I have friends. I mean, the stress that they were under. We are just not like that. Here we are in our own utopia in Austin, Texas with bunnies in the office, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it works. People are, you know, we're happy. I'm sure there are so many women who either consider you a mentor directly or indirectly have you as a role model. Of the young women out there who are founders and entrepreneurs, what's one thing they can be doing more of or doing differently um, that you consistently see happening out there? You know, I sometimes I feel like, and I and I talk a lot to to young women who are starting businesses. I love mentoring uh, women and men and who are starting businesses, but. I always tell them, you have to do whatever you're doing with your own unique perspective. If you're trying to do what everybody else is doing, you've already failed. That's one of my favorite things Mm -hmm. I like to say because it's true. I mean, why were we all given a unique fingerprint? I don't know. But I think it's because we should put our own unique fingerprint on whatever it is we do. I love that. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? You know, I think um, is to, to not be afraid to... You know, when you have your doubts and you have self-doubt, that's that's a normal thing. And I think it's okay to say, I need help with this. Or I'm not afraid now to ask for help, to say, you know, I've never done this. And I look up to mentors still. And I think that's a really important thing. Sometimes we feel like it's weak 
to ask for help. And I always say it is one of the greatest signs of strength. And I think as I've built this business and continued to build this business, you know, I do pick up the phone often and say, hey, I'm in a place I've never been before, and I really respect and admire you. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) How have you found people that you feel like you can trust? You know, I think, you know, you have to look for people that you respect and admire. And if you respect and admire them, they probably, again, I'm going to give you the 99% rule. I think people love to help other people. I think it's in our innate selves to want to help others. If someone else has found success, that probably is even greater because they've probably gone through a lot of struggles to get them to where they are. And I don't know very many successful people who don't love to be able to help others Mm -hmm. on their journey. And so I would just say, don't be afraid. If you're going to somebody that's doing a similar business, maybe, you know, have them sign an (laughs) NDA. Um, You know, but at the same time, I think it's, you know, not to be afraid to say, hey, and be vulnerable. It's okay to be vulnerable. Well, and I also think, to your point, when people come to me looking for advice or help, or when I've gone out to look for advice or help, one thing that really allows that process to move the best is being specific. So specifically define what your problem or your question is, or specifically define your ask. I was just having breakfast with a friend of mine this morning, and we were talking about she wanted to reach out to somebody. And I said, go in there and know what you're asking for and make sure that what you're asking for is something that that individual can very likely deliver for you. That's tremendous advice. And I think that's so helpful because you need to know what you're wanting to get out of that meeting or that interaction. Like, what is the goal? Uh, what am I going to take from this this nugget of information that's going to help me, you know, build on to what I'm trying to do? And I think if you really go in there with that set and really clearly define that to the person, I'm here today because I need your help with X. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be very clear about it. Can you help me with this? And, you know, I think you're right. And, and I love it when people have that and they come to me because I'm like, okay, hey, I can help with that. Right. You know, like, here, let's get to work. You know, get your pen out. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that's so fun. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? You know, I, I've been given crazy advice along the way. But <laughs> I, I think one editor told me that I couldn't have a successful business, uh, you know, if I didn't have it in New York City, that building a fashion business out of Austin, Texas was, you know, not the right thing to do. And there was about five minutes that I kind of contemplated, whoa, did I make a mistake starting this business in Texas? And then right after that, I said, no, this is the right place uh, it was a community that supported me. I think if I would have taken that jewelry box with a baby in a baby carrier in New York City, can you imagine what would have happened? I mean, I, I could have got they would have called security. I don't know. I love New York, but I don't know if it would have gone over as well. Uh, you know, starting in Austin, you know, that that community gave me my wings to fly. And I think that's a great point for anyone out there who's thinking about starting something. The the rules have completely changed around this. Completely. And I think part of it, too, is that we're so connected now, right? I mean, through, you know, social media. And you really are able to, you know, look at everything that's happening around the globe. So it doesn't matter if you're in Wisconsin or Texas or New York or L.A. Wherever you are, you have access now. And access is powerful because you can see what's happening. And so we're always looking, you know, what is trending? What's happening? But we also do it again with our own unique voice. And I think that's what separated our brand. I wasn't so worried about what all the other brands were doing. I wanted to know what the color palettes were for the season. And I wanted to know some information. But I wanted to go to market and look different. I wanted to look like Kendra Scott. On the point about data 
and and really knowing your customer. For a young business that doesn't have a team of people that's looking at that information, what do you recommend they do? You know, when I started until 2010, I had seven of us. The Super 7, which are all still with me, by <laughs> the way. That's such a good yes. thing about the company. Yes. And, you know, we were doing like 50 million jobs. Like we all wore different hats. Uh, my VP of design, Denise, who's been with me for 13 years, she la- she literally, she was a design assistant. She was, uh, she would call on accounting. She would like have set up trade shows. She was in sales. And we did it all. Like we did it all. You have to. And I think that, you know, when you have limited resources, You need to bring on a team of people who aren't afraid to roll their sleeves up, who aren't afraid to try to learn new things. Every day we were learning something new and we were all just like so excited to try to figure it out. And we were, you know, we were building something together. And when you do that, it's really, really exciting. I think you've got to know, again, I knew my core values. I knew that being a mom was the most important thing to me. Before being a CEO, before being a designer, I was a mom first. And I had to hire people that had that same like-minded spirit. Giving was incredibly important to me. I had to hire people that that was a a foundation that was important. So I think as you're building a business, you have to look at that. Core values, hire on core values first. Experience can come later. But core values is something you can't teach somebody. Such an important lesson. And I know there's a lot of founders who get a lot of pressure to hire on the resume or the pedigree as opposed to that gut instinct. And that's, I mean, that's another, I think I made some of those mistakes in the early days. I hired on resume only. And in my heart, as in in those interviews, my gut, which by the way, we should all really listen to because usually it's right. My gut's like, I don't know about this person, but gosh, their resume is so good. Their experience is so good. Well, then they would come in with a very aggressive tone or how they would talk with. And I'm like, that's not how we communicate here. This is not how we talk to each other. And I realized very quickly, I will never, ever again, ever again, hire just on resume. I've got to hire their on their heart. And and I've never regretted those those decisions, not one time since. And we've built this amazing company across the country now because we, it's birds with feather flock together. We literally are hiring people with a like-minded heart. Kendra Scott, did you ever think that your name (laughs) would come to mean what it does today? No. You know, Rebecca, we had, we do these like three-year vision boards at our company. We've done them forever. And one of the things on there is like someday maybe the name would become like people would know the name when they hear it. And it was kind of one of our dreams. Like, could we become kind of a household name at some point? We're not there yet. I mean, I think people are definitely starting to hear more about Kendra Scott. We've been kind of quiet over the last 16 years of growing this company. <laughs> kind of. But occasionally I get a dinner reservation that I didn't wouldn't have gotten before, <laughs> which is that's a bonus. <laughs> um, well, I hope there are many more dinner reservations to come. And I know that you will be wowing people with your work and who you are for many, many years. So thank you so much for joining us, Kendra Scott. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Hillary France. She is the founder and CEO of Brand Assembly, which is a company that she created in 2013 to help emerging brands and designers find all the tools and resources they need to grow and succeed. Something I would imagine many of you out there 
could really use. Hillary started out her career in the fashion industry. She worked for brands like Kate Spade, Guess, and Diane von Furstenberg. She ultimately decided to create her company because she noticed that new designers and brands needed a one-stop shop to help them solve problems and grow their business. Brand Assembly offers trade shows, co-working spaces, and back-office logistical help so newer designers can get the help and support they need. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Hillary France. I'm the CEO of Brand Assembly. Brand Assembly is a platform for emerging fashion designers and professionals to further their businesses. We do this through several divisions, including back office, which provides logistical and operational infrastructure, trade shows based here in New York, Los Angeles, and Dallas, and two co-working spaces here in New York, as well as Los Angeles. After loving emerging fashion designers and working for really large brands, I saw an opportunity to leverage multiple resources and create a collaborative fashion community. Congratulations, Hillary. Wishing you continued success. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Hillary and hear more about how she created her business. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, or if you have career questions, you can send them to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I know how busy everyone is, so thank you to those of you who write. I also want to say thank you, thank you to those of you who have been leaving us reviews. Those five stars mean the world, not only to us, but they help people find the podcast, so thank you. This one from Karen Kay, she writes, I stumbled over this podcast and I'm so glad I did. I get so much inspiration as a woman in a leadership position. These women, including Rebecca herself, showcase resilience, leadership, authenticity, humor, and innovation. Every time I listen, I'm inspired to create an act. Thank you for this, Rebecca, and for doing one on yourself, too. Karen Kay, thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. And I have to say, uh, a number of you have been sending me emails lately or tweeting me or commenting on Instagram about what No Limits means in your life, the things that you've done in response to listening to our podcast, the lessons that you've learned and the choices that you've made. And that makes my day. When I hear that what we're doing here is making a difference in your real lives and that it's helping you learn and grow and make better decisions for yourself, that means the world to me. That is why we're here doing what we're doing. So thank you so much to those of you who have reached out. Thank you so much to those of you who have left us reviews. It means not just a lot to me, but I know it means a lot to our whole team here because that is why we do what we do. Okay, and finally, a shout out to our fabulous team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.